The old pilot's plain tales. The wing that broke Jack Northrop. Arguably one of the most talented and innovative aircraft developers of his time, John Nudson Northrop had long sought an aircraft design that could start a revolution. A craft with a minimum of drag and a level of lift unachievable in any other form. The flying wing design he felt would do the job since it ensured that all the weight of the aircraft contributed to the creation of lift, something a conventional aircraft with a tail structure would always fail to do. And the lack of fuselage and tail would result in lower parasitic drag. His concept wasn't new, but where others had failed, he was sure he could succeed and develop an aircraft that would take the world by storm. Jack, as John Northrop was usually known, pursued his dream of building a pure flying wing strategic bomber that would exceed the capabilities of anything else his less imaginative competitors were designing. The concept was far from new, but no one had yet taken it through to a successful conclusion, although many had tried. The idea of a true flying wing aircraft originated in Europe. Experiments by Otto Lilienthal, the German, considered the father of the glider, had an impact on those who would follow. And Igo Etrich of Czechoslovakia is considered the first to fly one in 1909. His aircraft, shaped like an elliptical seed, had stability issues, so eventually a tail was fitted which rather defeated the object. The dream of most flying wing designers was to mimic the perfection and control of birds, particularly seabirds like the wandering albatross, which have achieved the ability to fly for long periods without the need to expend energy. Several other aircraft builders, such as Dunn and Junkers, tried and failed to achieve a practical flying wing design, but most found stability and control problems that could only be solved with a fin and usually a tail section as well. In 1919, Jack Northrop joined the Douglas and Lockheed companies, then called Lockheed. In his spare time with a colleague, he worked on a flying wing glider, but was discouraged by the company from doing so, so in 1929 he left to form his own company, Avion, where he could follow his dreams. After a difficult start, he was forced to sell, but then with the backing of Donald Douglas, he formed the Northrop Corporation, which built a number of successful conventional aircraft. However, Northrop continued to pursue his goal of building a true flying wing and before long he had constructed experimental number one. But like other designers' earlier efforts, this prototype couldn't fly without a boom tail holding a horizontal stabilizer and rudders. He knew that a true flying wing was possible because the Horton brothers in Germany had succeeded in building true tailless gliders, a story I covered in an earlier tale. During the early stages of the war, with German troops marching over most of Europe and into Russia, 
the U.S. government had become increasingly concerned with obtaining new aircraft designs that might counter the threat that Nazi Germany posed. Seeing the distinct possibility of the British being defeated and having to conduct a transatlantic war without that convenient island to base aircraft, the U.S. Army wanted a super bomber that could carry enough fuel and bombs for a non-stop flight to Germany and back. Northrop took on the challenge and designed the XB-35. The Army was so intrigued with the plans that it agreed to fund the development of two XB-35 experimental prototype aircraft with a possible follow-up contract for 200 more. They also funded the one-third scale versions that would be required during development. Jack succeeded in designing his first truly practical flying wing, the N1M, a testbed that proved his concept was feasible. The first test flight took place in December 1942. Production of the XB-35 was gearing up and the pressure was on Northrop for the next scaled version, the N9M, to perform. He was concerned about the aircraft's lack of lateral stability, a concern that turned out to be genuine. The prototype tended to move irregularly about its lateral axis. Another problem was with the aircraft's stall characteristics. Being a swept wing design, it tended to stall first at the wingtips. Not only did that cause aileron authority to be lost, but it also lost elevator authority because those control services were combined into elevons. The stalls were unpredictable and dangerous. The N9M could suddenly pitch up or just slide off to one side and enter a spin. The aircraft claimed its first casualty in May 1943 with the death of test pilot Max Constant. An investigation found that the machine had suffered from control reversal and in the resulting steep spin the control column had been forced against his chest, preventing him from parachuting to safety. One of the problems Northrop faced included the lack of mathematical calculations that could establish the dynamic stability of his designs. In this area, he sought the assistance of Dr. Theodore von Kármán, one of the world's leading authorities on aerodynamics who taught at the California Institute of Technology. Von Kármán's expertise proved invaluable. What would have taken Northrop's engineers three days to calculate, he could complete in less than an hour using his new equations and a blackboard. At the same time, Jack Northrop was trying to develop a fighter jet, an aircraft called the XP-79. That also used the flying wing concept. It was an unusual aircraft in that the pilot lay in the prone position to help counter the effects of G-forces, especially when turning or pulling out of a dive. The plan was to use two 2,000-pound thrust aerojet rockets to power the XP-79, but in the event they were powered by two Westinghouse 19B axial flow turbojets. The aircraft had two small tail fins added for stability. The first one never flew. The second aircraft, called the XP-79A, was redesignated a rocket-assisted glider 
and named the MX-324. It was towed into the air by a Lockheed P-38 Lightning and on July 5, 1944, became America's first ever rocket-powered aircraft. With a wingspan of 38 feet and a length of 14 feet, it was constructed from heavy, welded magnesium wings to be used for ramming if its 4.5-inch machine guns had not done the job. The turbojet-powered XB-79A series had a design top speed of 526 miles an hour and a range of up to 990 miles. Unfortunately, its first and last flight was on September 12, 1945. Whilst performing a slow roll 15 minutes into the flight, for unknown reasons, test pilot Harry Crosby lost control. The nose dropped and the rolls continued with the aircraft impacting in a vertical spin. The pilot had bailed out but was struck by part of the aircraft and he fell to his death. Shortly thereafter, the project was cancelled. It was the only aircraft in US history specifically designed for ramming. Finally, early in 1942, design work on the XB-35 itself began in earnest. Unlike conventional aircraft, truly tailless flying wings don't have a rudder for lateral control. Instead, a set of clamshell-like double-split flaps called flaperons, a portmanteau of flap and aileron, on the trailing edge of the wings were used instead. When roll inputs are made, the flaperons are deflected up or down as a single unit, just like an aileron. When a rudder input is made, the two surfaces on one side split open, top and bottom spreading apart, creating drag and yawing the aircraft. When wanted, both sets of flaperons can be deployed creating drag-like air brakes, so that the airspeed or glide angle can be altered. A fuselage-like crew cabin was to be embedded inside the wing. The design included a tail cone protruding from the trailing edge, which would contain the remote sighting stations for the bombers, gunners, and a cluster of rear-firing machine guns. In the midsection of the cabin, there were folding bunks for off-duty crew on long missions. The aircraft's bomb load was to be carried in six bomb bays, three in each wing section, fitted with roll-away doors, although the original design precluded the carrying of large bombs such as the early atomic weapons. Production aircraft would have defensive armament of 20.5-inch machine guns or 20mm cannon, carried in six turrets along the aircraft's centerline, four above and below the wings, and four in the tail cone. In June 1946, the XB-35 made its first flight, a 45-minute trip to Muroc Dry Lake without incident. The XB-35's engines and propellers were Army Air Force property and had not been tested for compatibility by either Pratt & Whitney, Hamilton Standard or by the Army. Reports and correspondence tell of three or four flights when power plant and propeller vibrations increased and the very efficient contra-rotating propellers began failing with frustrating frequency. 
In meetings, no agency would accept responsibility. The army also refused to allow Northrop's proposed modification of the bomb base to carry the standard Mark III atomic bomb, whilst at the same time declaring that they wouldn't buy the bomber unless it could carry the A-bomb. Problems with the propeller shafts got worse, until Jack Northrop himself grounded the XP-35s until the government fixed their propulsion system. As a solution, some aircraft were fitted with single props, with a severe loss of performance, and then the Army ordered Northrop to convert a pair of the aircraft to accommodate eight Allison turbojets. As a result, the airframe promptly flew to more than 40,000 feet and topped 520 miles an hour, 840 kilometers per hour, in flight tests, verifying the XP-35 airframe's aerodynamics, but at the price of range by using the thirsty jet engines. The prompt version had a design range capable of reaching targets 4,000 miles 6,400 kilometres away, but the jet engine version's range was cut nearly in half. This disqualified it for the Air Force's top priority mission as a strategic bomber, which at the time meant striking at the USSR's industrial and military complexes in the Ural Mountains. The Air Force, itself involved in a confusion of rank and job changes, eventually cancelled the XB-35 project whilst continuing to test the airframe as the jet-powered XB-49. The second XB-35 converted to an XB-49 all-jet airframe crashed after an Air Force test pilot pulled the outer wing panels off at 4.8G during stall tests. The first completed all its stall and spin tests satisfactorily, but was destroyed by a fire after the nose gear collapsed during a high-speed taxi test with full fuel tanks, which then leaked. A third XB-35 was converted to jet power, with four engines mounted inside the wing and a pair of podded jets slung underneath. It was to be a long-range reconnaissance aircraft. After only a few months, without explanation, the Air Force cancelled its order for 30, and the last of Northrop's big flying wings sat abandoned near the edge of the airfield for two years, before being finally ordered scrapped on the 1st of December 1953. In front of Northrop and his devoted workers, the aircraft were broken up, jigs destroyed and blueprints thrown into a bonfire. The design of the flying wing had been Northrop's passion, and its failure to be selected as the next-generation bomber platform and the subsequent destruction of the prototypes and incomplete aircraft was a severe blow to him. In 1952, he retired at the age of 57 and virtually ended his association with the company that bore his name. However, in 1979, he finally broke his decades-long silence on the matter, alleging a conspiracy within government centred around the then Air Force Secretary, Stuart Symington. 
With a mind that appeared as sharp as on the day he retired, he recalled an interview between Symington and himself. Apparently, Northrop was told he should merge his company with Consolidated Valtee. After the lengthy diatribe on Mr. Symington's part, Northrop asked what the alternatives were. He said, Alternatives? You'll be goddamn sorry if you don't. General McCarney, also in attendance, exclaimed, Oh, Mr. Secretary, you don't mean that the way it sounds. And Mr. Symington said, You're damn right I do. Richard Miller, who in 1948 was the Northrop chairman of the board, corroborated Jack Northrop's story. Shortly after negotiations on merger terms failed, Northrop got a call from Symington. He said, I'm cancelling all your flying wing aircraft. Jack asked, oh, Mr. Secretary, why? And he said, I've had an adverse report and hung up. Symington subsequently denied that he had made any threats, as well as the rumour that he'd been in the running to head the firm that would have resulted from the proposed merger between Consolidated Valtee and Northrop. Orders for the next generation of bomber were given to Consolidated Valtee, who built the B-36 Peacemaker, a conventional aircraft that suffered from many problems, with its critics referring to it as a billion-dollar blunder, and it only remained in service for seven years. By the time Jack Northrop had revealed his story to the press, his health was failing. He still had great faith in his flying wing designs and communicated as such to NASA. He received an encouraging reply, indicating that the idea had technological merit and telling Northrop that his flying wing concepts had not been completely abandoned. Unbeknown to him, a very secret project was underway which would eventually be revealed as the Northrop Grumman's B-2 Spirit. During its design and development, the Northrop B-2 program was a black project, requiring a secret clearance for all program personnel. Despite this, shortly before his death and unable to walk or speak, Jack Northrop was given clearance to see designs and to hold a scale model of the Northrop Grumman B-2 Spirit Stealth Bomber, which shared design features from his beloved XB-35 and XB-49. Indeed, they had exactly the same wingspan, 172 feet. Unable to speak, Northrop reportedly wrote on a sheet of paper, Now I know why God has kept me alive for 25 years. The B-2 project designer, John Cashin, said, As he held this model in his shaking hands, it was as if you could see his entire history with the flying wing passing through his mind. Jack Northrop died ten months later. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. 
You can find out all about that podcast at airlinepilotguy.com. Plain Tales is also a standalone podcast, and if you're enjoying the stories and want to keep us going, then how about leaving us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? We'd be very grateful. Thanks very much for listening.